Hello, and welcome to Let's Pharmanize. A proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Shane Gerritsen. And I'm Cal Vandergrift. And today we have a very special guest with us here. My wife, Kelly Kerr, is joining us. We are on our Christmas break. This was her last day of school, isn't that right? Yeah, it was my last day of school. And you are a uh, high school English teacher, and you got showered with gifts by all of your students, right? Indeed, I did, but not as much as elementary school. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, those were those were the days. Cal, how's your break been so far? It's been crazy, but it's uh, it's been nice. nice. Finally be done. Yeah, we find ways to keep busy, that's for sure. Like making a podcast. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, we've we've been done with our exams for about a week now. Got a pretty cool episode for today. We're going to talk a little bit about the medicine of World War II. There's a lot of great films centered on the conflict in World War II, like Saving Private Ryan, Das Boot, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, after having been a, a huge fan for a long time, I recently introduced my wife to Band of Brothers, the true story of Easy Company of the 101st Airborne. It was released on 2001 on HBO. Uh, Cal, I know that you've seen it. We've talked about it before. It was amazing, right, Kelly? It was really good. Yeah, you loved it so much you read the book. Yeah, I'm still not finished with it, but I'm I'm in the midst of it. Yeah, that's that's really cool. It's probably the greatest miniseries of all time, in my opinion. Oh, it was that good. Yeah, it, it's incredible. And if you have an interest in World War II movies, I, I definitely recommend it. So let's talk a little bit about the history first. After the first medical corps of the U.S. military was actually established by the Continental Congress in 1775, but it wasn't really until World War II that the Army began increasing the amount of training for aid men or medics in the Army, and including residency options, actually, for medical students to act as physicians and surgeons populating aid stations and military hospitals. It was likely the result of the casualties of World War I. Of the approximate 116,000 casualties to the U.S. military, over half are attributed to disease. This is from World War I statistics. This led the Medical Corps of the Military to open the new Medical Field Service School in 1921, the first of several schools for medical training, wherein new medical officers and enlisted medics would receive specialized training in wound dressing, anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, and even bacteriology. Army medics received their training alongside basic training, which would last anywhere from 8 to 17 weeks, based on the needs of the Army at that time. Over the course of World War II, this number fluctuated a lot. There were typically three medics for each company, and that's about one medic per 25 soldiers, so that's a that's a pretty big responsibility. Once deployed and in combat, medics found themselves kept quite busy caring for and evacuating the sick and wounded members of their company, and would over time become indispensable and highly valued members of their platoons. Medics were, in some cases, um, distanced from their platoons as they received slightly different training and were not around the other soldiers all the time during basic training. But deployment was a different story. Medics quickly established their importance on the front line with wound dressing and recognition of illnesses and ways to treat and prevent them. One of the medics and the pieces of media we'll be referring to occasionally today is technician fourth grade Eugene Rowe, a medic who served with Easy Company, uh, like uh, from Band of Brothers that we mentioned earlier, and as portrayed by actor Shane Taylor in Band of Brothers. And no, that's not why we're talking about him, just because he's named after me. Medics like Eugene were like non-commissioned officers, like a sergeant, but they didn't have any command authority. Their role in terms of rank was actually a little cloudy. In fact, they reported to two different officers, the ranking officer of their platoon as well as the ranking officer of their medical corps. Eugene, although very serious and seemingly aloof from the camaraderie and brotherhood of Easy Company, was still a highly respected and well-liked member of their group. His reputation as a dedicated and dependable member of their platoon led Eugene to earn a great deal of respect even from his commanding officers. 
His judgment was so highly regarded that at one point he even strongly chastised one of his commanding officers and faced no repercussions, and he was totally right anyway. We'll talk about that situation in a few minutes. Let's talk about a scenario replicated many times on film and in television. You're a medic. You're in a foxhole near the front line. Suddenly explosions fill the air and the ground shakes beneath your feet as the Germans begin bombarding your location with heavy artillery. Several minutes pass with no respite from the bombing. After a few more minutes, the artillery stops, and the air once filled with explosions is still again. This silence is soon pierced by the first calls for a medic. You clamber out of your foxhole and begin running towards the sounds of the wounded, one hand clutching your medic satchel, the other gripping your helmet to your head. When you reach the wounded soldier, his wounds are not egregious. A small piece of shrapnel embedded in his thigh. You're out of morphine, so unfortunately you can't do anything for the pain. You remove from your aid bag a small pouch filled with white powder. You rip a corner off of this pouch and sprinkle the white powder over the open wound. There's nothing you can do here to remove the shrapnel from the wound. The man must be taken to an aid station off the line for surgery. You bandage the wound with cotton dressing, wrapped around the leg to keep pressure. After the bandage is applied, you help the man to his feet and help him get to the aid station where a surgeon is awaiting the many wounded to follow. What we have just described is a typical, albeit rather lucky, situation among front lines. Medics were first and foremost meant to treat and evacuate the wounded. Medics and aid men during World War II in the European theater were strongly discouraged from carrying weapons. They were allowed, however, to carry sidearms, but if used offensively, they would sacrifice their protection under the Geneva Convention as a non-combatant and would be heavily penalized. Medics starting in World War I identified themselves with a Red Cross, a symbol universally recognized and indicating their role as a non-combatant. I think we've talked about the Red Cross before and how they had to stop putting it into video games because it's copyrighted. Right. I think I think we talked about that in Ivan's episode. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty crazy. I was just thinking about that. Uh, so the International Red Cross also recognizes the Red Crescent used by the Ottoman Empire, whose soldiers were Muslim. There's also a Red Star of David, Red Lion, and even a Red Diamond for secular militaries. In the European theater of World War II, this symbol of the Red Cross was recognized by both sides in many cases. Infantry of the German army would not fire on Allied medics and vice versa. The German SS, however, developed a reputation for targeting medics specifically. In the Pacific Theater, the Red Cross also found itself a target for enemy fire. There are many reports of the Imperial Japanese Army intentionally targeting medics, to the point the U.S. Army medics began to forego the customary Red Cross on their uniforms. Yeah, so I, I remember in uh, in uh, MASH. Did you ever watch MASH? I didn't, but Kelly did. Yeah, I watched yeah. the whole thing. So yeah, MASH is an incredible TV show, one of my favorites. And and they always talked about uh, the North Koreans firing on the Red Cross because they had a big Red Cross on their surgical tent. European war and versus uh, Pacific theater war is, is completely different. Oh, definitely, yeah. Totally different rules of engagement. But yeah, MASH is really unique because it's, I think, one of the only pieces of media about the Korean War. There aren't any movies about the Korean War. They're almost always about World War II, either Europe or Pacific Theater, and then they skip Korean War and go straight to Vietnam. Right. Well, that's always just the thing, too, isn't it? Because they, they never consider uh, Korea 
even to be a war. They always called it the Korean conflict. It was never the Korean War until much afterwards in textbooks. Interesting. I didn't actually know that. That's cool. Let's talk about one of the greatest advances of World War II, available from the beginning and commonplace and pretty effective. That white powder that we talked about in our, our that our theoretical medic spreads on the wound of their ally. Do you know what that powder is, Cal? I, I don't know exactly what it is, no. You know what it is, right, Kelly? Didn't you say it was an antibiotic? It is. It's an antibiotic. It's sulfa, or sulfanilamide, discovered actually in 1935 by a German scientist, Gerhard Domagk, D-O-M-A-G-K. That's a tough one. Sulfa quickly became the go-to compound for prevention and treatment of bacterial infections. In my research, it's actually unclear if the German army actually utilized sulfa or not. The history of sulfa's invention is a little complicated. Although Domac discovered the antibacterial qualities of sulfanilamide, it wasn't until researchers at Johns Hopkins University began to develop the compound for large-scale distribution that sulfa became a staple for military use and a regular component of the American soldier's equipment kit. Soldiers and medics carried the sulfa in a powdered form to be sprinkled on wounds and also a tablet form, which was less popular. We've seen the sulfa distribution in like a, a lot of different movies. Like they do it in Band of Brothers like a dozen times. And then I remember it pretty distinctly in a scene of Saving Private Ryan as well. Do you remember yeah, that scene? That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, I think it's, um, it, and I think it's yeah. their medic himself he gets wounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sh- they shot the medic. That's yeah. what it was. That's a great movie. We should watch that again. So the tablets were a lot less popular. The tablets came in a tin of 12 with instructions reading, if wounded, take two tablets every five minutes until all tablets are taken. Now, it's not really ideal for a wounded soldier on the front line to sit there staring at their watch taking pills over the course of a half an hour. Not only were the instructions hard to adhere to, but the tablets required drinking a lot of water with them to prevent kidney damage. Because of the high pH of the sulfanilamide, there was a tendency for the drugs to crystallize, causing nephrolithiasis, or in other words, kidney stones. Sulfanilamide wasn't as effective as antibiotics we have today, and within a few decades it was replaced by the more popular beta-lactam antibiotics like amoxicillin and penicillin. Another drug that was equally important component of a soldier's kit was morphine, approved by the FDA in 1941, pre-filled serrettes with a dose of half a grain, or approximately 32 milligrams, were stored in a flat box, usually holding five serrettes. The drug was either administered subcutaneously or intramuscularly. It was intended for subcutaneous use with a short needle. You're supposed to pinch the skin slightly and insert it at an angle. Obviously, this didn't always happen, and I don't think it would make a huge difference in the situation. What's one thing that we know about morphine? What happens if you take too much? Well probably gonna overdose you die yeah you overdose potentially you die we've mentioned on the show once before but the i'll say it again the overdose threshold for oral morphine is about 200 milligrams but people have od'd on doses as low as 60 particularly opioid naive patients this dose is 32 milligrams and theoretically subcutaneous or intramuscular administration would have slightly higher bioavailability meaning that also theoretically the OD threshold could be lower. Army medics were well-versed on the ramifications of a morphine overdose and would go to great lengths to prevent overdoses from happening and try to keep track of whether or not a patient has received a dose of morphine. You may have seen this on TV or in a movie. If you were administering morphine and your patient is taken to an aid station for surgery, how would you make sure that the surgeon knows your patient has already received a dose of morphine? Put an M on them. That's one way. Cal, what would you do if you had to think of some way creatively? I don't know. Some sort of marking. I like the M. I think the M would have worked. Yeah, an M with a Sharpie. No, with their blood. With their blood. (laughs) Their blood. You could do that. Yeah. So soldiers would use one of three ways. The medical course training preferred way was a little notebook that each medic carried with carbon copy forms. Do you guys know what carbon copy paper is? Yeah. 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 
So medics carried carbon copy notebooks, and after treating a wounded soldier, they would fill out the soldier's name, rank, arm of service, age, race, date of birth, date of enlistment, location of wound, time of wound, and description of treatment, including whether or not morphine was administered. Each one of these sheets had a string uh, pre-attached to a grommet, which were those little metal rings in paper that like manila tags or envelopes have. The string would then be tied to a button on the soldier's uniform, and the carbon copy turned into the medic's commanding officer. Obviously, this was a terrible idea and it didn't work out. Taking the time to fill out tedious paperwork was not only frustrating, but really dangerous when under fire. Most medics quickly abandoned the paperwork and instead would pin the used surette to the lapel of the soldier. This, to me, was kind of ingenious. This reduced the number of steps to basically one. The surette is already in the medic's hand. They would then simply press it through the lapel and either bend the needle or recap it. There's no reports of medics ever sticking themselves accidentally during the process, so I'm certain that that never happened. Can you imagine accidentally sticking yourself with a morphine surette when you're trying to put it through the soldier's jacket? I think, honestly, it might it might help you in that situation. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. running through active fire. Maybe, that's, maybe that'll help you get a little bit of morphine in your system. That's one thing that I always want to criticize about war movies, though, is when they inject the morphine, the soldiers immediately just like, oh, man, I feel so much better. Even I am morphine takes like 20 to 30 minutes to have an effect. Yeah. It's not fast. I think it was in Saving Private Ryan was was where they were just like, he kept giving it to him. I think it was the medic scene, same medic scene where they were just like, keep, they kept giving him morphine. Uh, yeah, I should have watched that again to prepare for this episode, but I think they gave him like three more shots of morphine. Yeah, and it was just like, that's... Which is... I mean, he probably would have died from his wound and he got shot in the liver. Yeah, they got him in the liver, I remember that. But yeah, that was like 90 plus milligrams of morphine just right off the bat. Does morphine travel through your system faster if it's injected through an IV bag? It does, yeah. Much, much faster. It goes straight into the... Um, the circulatory system, whereas if you put it in intramuscularly, it still has to get absorbed through the muscle, so it takes a little bit longer. But theoretically, the effect uh, under IV would be within minutes, just a few minutes, like less than five. Yeah, I know when I've had kidney stones and they've given me, well, they don't give me morphine, but what's the stuff that they give me? Fentanyl. When they would give me that, I would be out yeah. in like a few minutes. Minutes, yeah. It's really fast IV because it's, it's straight into the central compartment. It doesn't need to go through any kind of absorption or any kind of cell layers or anything. It's just immediate, straight to the brain too within like 60 seconds. So the other less desirable option, but necessary in certain situations, like Kelly said, is to actually draw the letter M on the forehead of the soldier in blood, usually the soldier's own. This was in the event that the surette is lost or misplaced and was certainly not the preferred method. And we do see this in an episode of Band of Brothers. Uh, when a soldier is injured by a mortar and treated with morphine, medic Eugene Rowe draws the letter M on his forehead before he's taken to the aid station. That's the only reason why I said that is because when that scene happened, you pointed it out and was like, why did he draw an M? And I said, I don't know, because he done got murdered <laughs> or something. Yeah, I, I didn't even remember that. I don't even remember that scene. Yeah, we just, I mean, we just watched the whole thing like three weeks yeah. ago. I, yeah, you definitely have an advantage on me over this. It's our new Christmas tradition. <laughs> and another scene, which I alluded to earlier, an American soldier is unintentionally shot by one of their own soldiers and is tended to by Captain Richard Winters and Lieutenant Harry Welsh. While waiting for the medic to arrive, Welsh and Winters forget how much morphine they've given to the soldier. When medic Eugene Rowe arrives on the scene, he notes the lack of surrettes on the man's lapel and very angrily scolds the officers, who outrank him significantly. It's one of my favorite scenes because it shows a really interesting dynamic 
of the army medic and how the reputation can lead to such a great deal of respect, even from higher ranking officers. Stranger! I got him, Harry. You give him morphine? Yeah. How much? Oh, I can't remember. Two, three cerettes, maybe. Two, three cerettes, maybe? Yeah. Jesus Christ, were you trying to kill him? It was two. You don't think it might be important to let me know how much medication the man has had, huh? Because I do not see one cerette on the man's jacket. I'm sorry, Doc. It was a good thing he a big man. Maybe he's in a chance. He's in a lot of pain, Doc. We didn't know what to do. Yeah, well, you ought to. You know, you are officers, you are grown-ups, you ought to know. All right, let's go. Come on, move it. Yeah, no, I think I think that's really good because I think it shows the leadership ability of Captain Winters. I really like that scene too. I remember that one definitively because it was like most captains would have probably just dropped whoever they were tending to and like scolded the medic or whatever. But uh, it wasn't just an officer. He was a man amongst men, you know. Yeah, Captain Winters is like my hero. He's such a good guy. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about morphine, sulfa, basic wound scenarios, but occasionally wounds would be too severe, so severe that a soldier could die of blood loss alone. In cases like this, they actually use either plasma or whole blood, even as far back as World War II. Plasma offered the greatest convenience in an emergency situation, being pretty readily available, and without any red blood cells or antibodies, there was no need to match blood types. In World War II, they even had dried plasma available, which was easy to transport and lasted a lot longer and could be reconstituted quickly by the medic on the battlefield. Liquid plasma and whole blood were both stored in glass bottles, which broke easily and were difficult to transport effectively. It wasn't until 1950, after the war, that the plastic bags which we're so familiar with now were introduced. The use of whole blood and plasma ended up saving the lives of thousands of soldiers over the course of the Second World War. That's interesting because I do remember at MASH they were using glass bottles, maybe just because it's more... It's more reminiscent of the time, maybe, even though they weren't using it anymore. But Maybe. I remember them specifically using glass bottles. It might also still have been cheaper to produce at that time. I mean, I mean, the Army's, Army does cheap things. I mean, they yeah. probably, most of the stuff was World War II surplus that they were just sending over. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, considered by many historians to be the turning point of the war, let's talk about a new drug. The year is 1943. Winston Churchill is the epitome of good health. He smokes, he drinks, he's obese, he probably has heart disease, Lipitor hasn't been invented yet, and now he's got pneumonia. Things are looking grim for old Winnie. Then comes along Alexander Fleming who says, yo, try this. What miraculous drug am I referring to, Cal? Penicillin. Yeah, baby, penicillin. Churchill takes the penicillin and his pneumonia is cured and the newspapers and radio are alight with celebration of this new wonder drug. Except, according to penicillin's actual discoverer, Churchill wasn't cured by penicillin. He was cured by sulfa. Yeah, boring, ineffective sulfa cured the British bulldog of his bacterial pneumonia. That's not to say that penicillin couldn't have cured him. In fact, it probably could have done so a little better. In fact, it's unclear why Churchill didn't receive the penicillin, but the reason for the propaganda makes sense. Sulfa was German-made, and penicillin was discovered in Britain by a Scottish physician. Not to mention... A lot more sense. Yeah. Not to mention it was way more effective and didn't cause those pesky kidney stones. It's... That's sus. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, it makes sense to me. Like, they, they had the data, and they were like, let's, you know, figure out a way to get this propelled into the mainstream. Let's just right. say it, it saved Winston Churchill. It's just a little weird to me that... I don't know. It just seems like it was already mass-produced at this point, right? Sulfas weren't, like, strictly made by Germans at that point. Yeah, sulfa was mass-produced, but, like, they had the data on penicillin. And the actual story behind, the like, the whole Winston Churchill thing is even more ridiculous. Like, the newspapers and radios created this whole fantasy about how Alexander Fleming's father saved Winston Churchill as a boy from drowning 
in like a frozen lake, like that scene from It's a Wonderful Life. Do you remember that? Yeah, when George saves his little brother. Yeah, like they made this right. up, this whole weird fantasy. And then Winston Churchill's father was like, okay, I'll pay for your grandson to go to medical school. And that man was Alexander Fleming, who then invented penicillin and returned the favor and saved Winston Churchill. But it was all totally like made up. I, I mean, it's cute, but it doesn't make any sense. Can we watch It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas Eve? Yeah, we can watch that. Have you seen that movie, Cal? Oh my God. Every single year I watch It's a Wonderful Life. Really? It drives me absolutely bonkers. Get out of here. You're not wanting <laughs> It's just slander just, that film I, I don't like i just don't like what's his name i do oh, i'm jimmy store if it's jimmy, yeah, stewart. jimmy stewart i just ah uh, mary mary i love you mary you want the moon Zuzu's mary, battles, mary. You, you want the moon just say the word and i'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down i like jimmy stewart i love jimmy stewart he is the best he's a good guy and now a word from our sponsor So we've talked a lot about the European theater, arguably the more familiar battlefield in history for most people, and that's because of the distribution of troops and military funding. The U.S. military only, and only is in quotation marks, utilized around 25% of their forces for the Pacific theater. The jungles of the Pacific Islands brought their own unique challenges for U.S. military medics to contend with, including a host of unfamiliar diseases, dehydration, and heat exhaustion. The Pacific theater was brutal, and not just in regard to the ailments that the soldiers faced. The rules of engagement were different here, like we mentioned earlier. At least, the Japanese Imperial Army didn't seem to follow the rules. Unlike the European theater, Japanese soldiers were instructed to specifically target medics to damage morale and disrupt, disrupt American soldiers. This, coupled with the Japanese tactic of baiting for medics, that is, wounding soldiers and waiting for the cries of pain to attract medics, then shooting the medics, made the Pacific theater an incredibly dangerous experience for aid men. Because of this new danger, Medics began no longer identifying themselves by the Red Cross. The same Red Cross that protected them in Europe was now a bullseye in the South Pacific. One of the new requirements for fighting in the tropical regions of the South Pacific was vaccinations for yellow fever, smallpox, tetanus, and typhoid. I don't have a lot of information on when the soldiers were actually vaccinated, but I did see footage of soldiers lining up to receive a vaccine in what appeared to be base camp on an island. So I would assume that that's the standard procedure for the time to receive the vaccine once you're already there. See, I would, I would have imagined they would have done that well beforehand, like at, at, at boot camp. Yeah, that's what I would have thought too. But one of the other things that I was reading was that it's hard to, like they want to monitor the soldiers for a week after they give them the vaccines, which is another reason why doing it at like at camp is a bad idea. But maybe also they had limited resources and they were like, we don't want to use this vaccine on you until we're sure that you're in the jungle. See, that's the thing that doesn't make any sense about it. Like if they're going to, if they're going to be sent to the Pacific theater, why wouldn't everyone just receive the vaccines? They're literally trying to save money by not do, giving it to 100% of all the people they're sending over. But at the same time, they're sending all of these vaccines over on giant airships, you know, or, or you know, or battle battle carriers. It's just like, it's crazy. I don't, yeah, I don't know why they did it there. I'm, maybe we'll do a follow-up episode just about why they didn't vaccinate the soldiers. I, I think they did a really good job in the Pacific, which was also made by the people that made Band of Brothers. I thought they did a very good job at demonstrating how brutal it was. Um, with, with, with their medics, uh, like particularly early on in the series when they were on Guadalcanal. Mm -hmm. And then later on, I think they showed it when they were on Iwo, Iwo Jima as well. I mean, both of them. But Guadalcanal seemed like a lot worse. I don't think we've gotten that far. So we're, we're on like episode seven or eight of the Pacific. We're not, we're not in love with it. But anyway, 
So also, the way that they did these vaccines, it was really rough. Like, instead of doing, like, the 90-degree angle on the deltoid, they went in at, like, a low 45-degree angle. And he went in, like, so fast, just, like, sticking it in there. Ew. It, was, it looked What's brutal, but they, the guys didn't oh even God. flinch. It was, it was funny. So early vaccines like these, as I'm sure you know, were far from perfect. In fact, the yellow fever vaccine was cultivated in human serum which act and actually resulted in some nasty hepatitis outbreaks. As soon as they stopped using human serum, the hepatitis outbreaks stopped happening. What's human serum? Human plasma. Okay. What you may notice about a lot of the diseases I mentioned is that they're carried by mosquitoes. Mosquitoes were clearly a major problem for the Pacific Theater. And there was one disease commonly carried by mosquitoes that did not, at the time, have a vaccine. Can you tell me what that was, Kelly? Malaria. Yeah, malaria. Oh, old Stubby's coming back. Yeah, he was the yellow fever guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, that was yellow That's fever. Right. That wasn't malaria. You're right. Yeah. Still, it's reminiscent of the old times. I know. Old Stubby. He's the man. So, they, But they had the vaccine for yellow fever by this point. Okay, yeah. I mean, they figured that vector stuff out a while ago at this yeah. point. But malaria actually didn't have a vaccine developed until 2015. And even that vaccine isn't really all that great. Efficacy reports are really low. What they did have in the 1940s was atabrine, also known as mepicrine. I don't know if I'm pronouncing these right because they're not in the apps that I use. It is an antiprotozoal used to treat and prevent malaria. It's a drug closely related to chloroquine, which we've heard a lot about recently. Dose was one and a half grains, or roughly 100 milligrams. For prevention, a soldier would take one tablet every evening. For treatment, start at two tablets every six hours and work your way down to one tablet three times a day over the course of a week. Atabrine, like chloroquine and its derivatives, was not without its own host of side effects, including nausea, vomiting, dizziness, liver damage, and toxic psychosis, which sounds pretty terrifying. Jeez. Yeah. Field doctors and surgeons were actually able to make a diagnosis of malaria using a blood sample and microscope. They would take a soldier's blood and they could actually see the little devils. They're small, maybe about the tenth of the size of a red blood cell. Despite the side effects and reputation, Atabrin seemed to work pretty well. Anti-mosquito and Atabrin adherence propaganda made it hard for soldiers to forget about the need to take their medicine. There's a pretty famous photo that was actually referenced in the HBO series The Pacific, which you just mentioned a second ago, of a real sign outside of a field hospital in New Guinea. It read, these men didn't take their Atabrin, and on top were two skulls. Pretty grim. They were actual human skulls. Do you remember that scene from, like, the first or second episode of The Pacific? No, I don't. It's been a long time since I've seen The Pacific. Yeah. It was... The Pacific obviously had to make it, like, more graphic to adhere to what HBO fans want. So it's like a half-decayed skull, and it's even got, like, the, the Japanese Imperial hat on it. Oh. It was, it's brutal. But the, so the actual skulls on the real sign, they were just, like, decayed, like, totally clean skulls pretty much not that that's like you know it doesn't make it better <laughs> yeah less gruesome we've talked a lot about basic components of medic aid bags but with supply shortages obviously not every medic was fully equipped the ideal aid bag or aid station will include everything we've mentioned here as well as antifungals infection cream laxatives aspirin benzedrine iodine and many more the responsibilities of medics in World War II were varied and crucial for the success of soldiers on the line. Without the bravery and sacrifices of army medics, the losses on either side could have been much worse. That is true. I think these medics are always the undersung people in, in, in these. That's why I liked Saving Private Ryan so much was because, you know, growing up when you, when you want to, you know, I don't know. Most people that get into the medical field at some point when they were a child wanted to be someone in the medical field. And it's like you can relate to them a little bit more because they always portray them as the normal people 
You know, the other ones are these hard, you know, uh, grizzly men. And then you have the medic, you know, who's not carrying a weapon and whatever. And that, you know, that's the kind of thing. What was that movie where he intentionally did not carry a weapon? Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah, I hated that movie. Did you really? That was a stupid movie. Yes, because he wasn't he wasn't a medic, right? He was just any guy. He was a medic. He was a medic. Yeah. Was he a medic in that movie? Yeah, he had he went through the medic training. I just watched that movie like two weeks ago, and I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. Yeah, I just knew it wasn't a very good. Like I, I have seen. Was he a medic? Jeez. Yeah, he was a medic. Well, then that would make more sense. Why? Why were people even yelling at him at that point? He wouldn't carry any weapon. Yeah. He didn't even carry a sidearm, right? But see, the thing is, like they. They, they had the option of carrying a sidearm, but he, I, I think that the, um, being a conscientious objector and like enlisting in the military was kind of viewed by the other soldiers as this weird conflict of interest. Like, why are you even here, dude? You're a conscientious objector to the war, but. You said what? something about, um, that there was one medic to every 25 soldiers. Mm-hmm, roughly. That was like an average. That's awful. <laughs> Cause like it's. Me, I just thought about like our classroom ratio. Our classroom ratio is at our school is smaller than the average public school. And so I have my bigger classes of 25 and it's really hard for me to juggle 25 kids in total. I couldn't imagine if like one of them was hurt and calling for me and then the other four were like, hey, wait, come over here, Miss Kerr. <laughs> <laughs> Like, my brain would be all over the place. That's really crazy. Yeah. See, the thing about it, too, which was interesting, was going through medic training, it was kind of like the paratroopers. And you remember they were talking about it in Band of Brothers, I believe, when they talked about how important their jump boots were. Mm -hmm. You remember that? The same thing was for medics. Medics got extra pay for being medics. They didn't get paid the same as they were enlisted men. So it was a lot harder to to create more medic... Uh, positions because of course they were trying to save money they'd rather have enlisted men fighting than they would have medics yeah yeah that makes sense always trying to skimp i know i think that's the moral of today's episode is just army budgeting just just like the school system and the education system Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music. 